you see people at their worst and you see people getting better and you see people dying and it's a nice reminder to not take anything for granted and to not take your physical health for granted and to not take your mental health for granted. That was Alex Pavon and this is the Running on Own podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome to the Running on Own podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I'm really grateful that you've chosen to tune in today. Here on the Running on Own podcast, we feature long-form style conversations with women in endurance sports and in the outdoors. Although these conversations focus on women's stories in particular, this podcast is for everyone, for everyone to hopefully be inspired and empowered by. Today's guest, Alex Pavan, is a professional mountain biker and ER medic. I had the opportunity to meet with Alex in her hometown of Flagstaff, Arizona, earlier this year and learn about her incredible journey from being a competitive downhill ski racer throughout her youth to finding a passion for mountain biking that eventually led her to sign a professional contract. Alex is deeply thoughtful, grounded and honest about the risks and reward involved in pursuing what you love. When Alex is not biking, she works in the Flagstaff emergency room as an ER medic. I'm really, really excited to share Alex's story with all of you. And if today's conversation resonates, please reach out to us on Instagram. We always love to hear from everyone. And I also love to know where you listen to the podcast, on the run, in your car, on the bike. But don't take any pictures when driving or biking. Alex's story will tell you and show you that biking can be dangerous at times and also amazing. Okay, friends, you ready? Let's do this. Let's dive deep with the brilliant Alex Pavon. ever been on a podcast before? I have never been on a podcast. I have done some voiceover stuff for videos, but I've never been on a podcast. <laughs> what kind of videos have you worked with? Um, I've done a handful of mountain bike type video edit things. Um, I actually was down in Mexico in, in November, end of October, November over Dia de los Muertos, I was in Oaxaca um, doing a video project with Evo. Um, if you know who Evo is, evo.com, they're like a big outdoor, yeah. Um, so I went down there with a group of my very good friends to do, uh, race my bike and then like do this cool like Oaxaca mountain biking promotion video for them. Um, so I just did some voiceover for that, but didn't have fancy microphones. I like, <laughs> we forgot to do it while we were on the trip. So I ended up like recording it on this like tiny little microphone that plugged into my phone. And then I just sent it to my friend who was editing the video. And it was really, it's really awkward to like sit in your closet and talk to a microphone <laughs> totally <laughs> with no one around. You're like, this sounds so unnatural. <laughs> yes. I can resonate with that very much. Yeah. So. so what was for you, like the thing you were most surprised by from your time in Mexico? Oh my God. It's the best place. Well, I love Canada. Canada is like really my favorite place ever, but Mexico is just, it's incredible. Obviously, you know, living in Arizona, I'm close-ish to Mexico, but I don't really just like hop across the border much. I don't do a lot of Rocky Point time or anything like that. Um, I've been to Puerto Vallarta a couple times and, um, when I was little, we were down in Cabo. Um, I had never been as far south as Oaxaca. Um, and I just think it's funny because, you know, with politics of today and everybody loves to just talk about how Mexico is so dangerous and like, it's like, okay, but the United States is pretty dangerous actually too. But um, just going down there and like being surrounded by the nicest people who are just like so excited that you're there and they want to share their culture with you. And, you know, I never, ever, ever once felt unsafe and it's beautiful and the people are so nice. And I sort of speak Spanish, but not really that well. Um, and just like, they didn't care. They were just like, 
ha ha, no idea what you're saying to me, but come over here, come over here, we'll feed you. <laughs> so that was the best part about Mexico. It's just happy, happy, kind, sweet people. And we were like in the middle of nowhere. Like we flew into Oaxaca, but then we drove in these like old buses up into the hills into these like tiny little villages that like the people are like native. They speak Zapotec. They don't speak Spanish. Um, who were like their villages were getting swarmed with a hundred nasty bike racers. And they were just so excited to like have these people here. And you're like, you, it was crazy. It was awesome. Wow. It sounds like it was such a like welcoming and receptive experience. Yeah. What yeah. was the actual biking terrain like there? Oh, it's funny because <laughs> like they, the biking is incredible. It's some of the best bike riding I've ever, ever done. Um, and I've ridden around Canada a bunch, which is like people love to think of Canada as like this pinnacle of mountain biking and it, and it totally is. Um, it's incredible. And, you know, parts of Europe are incredible, but Mexico is probably the raddest place I've ridden my bike so far. It's, it's just really different. It's not, um, I guess it kind of has, I actually have not ridden in France ever, but France kind of has that old, old hiking trail, old village trail, but you're racing your bike on it type feel. They're not they're not purpose-built mountain bike trails and we're just riding our bikes on them. And Mexico was a lot like that. There are these old donkey trails that somehow were just perfect for riding your bike on. And they were steep and long and amazing, super high elevation and just like the most crazy vegetation, massive agave plants that were like as tall as me and as wide as me. And then, but like growing in these like beautiful old like pine forests, it was super bizarre, super beautiful. Rained wow. every day, <laughs> yeah. which was interesting. But that's amazing. I mean, you're from Flagstaff, Arizona, mm -hmm. and it's we're recording here, and it's super beautiful here. Take me back to your first memory of being on a bike. Um, well, I think my first memory of being on a bike. I remember learning how to ride a bike when I was, I don't know, three or four years old. You know, just like my dad running me down the street, holding the back of my seat. Um, <clears throat> and then I just rode bikes as like a way to get around as a kid a lot. Um, I wasn't like super into mountain biking, but I had this really sweet blue beach cruiser um, that had a, like an extra seat on the back and then had like big sissy bars so you could like put someone on the handlebars. And so it would always be like me and my two best friends when we were little riding around town my my parents house my parents have always lived super close to downtown um so we would ride the bike downtown it'd be like me pedaling and like one friend sitting on the handlebars or one friend on the back and like oftentimes the brakes wouldn't work and so everybody would like try and put their feet down burn holes in the bottom of their shoes trying to make the bike stop <laughs> like so that was mostly my experience on a bike until um a little later when we would like kind of ride mountain bikes for dryland training for ski racing, but I didn't start riding mountain bikes the way I ride mountain bikes now until like 2012, 2013. Yeah. What's so interesting to me about that first memory with, or one of your first memories with your girlfriends is there was like such an element of like community, mm -hmm. which I feel like is still, I'm not a part of the mountain biking community, would love to be someday, <laughs> but um, it seems like it's super strong, like among the women who do it. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I feel like you can apply, it's it's the same across most sports with women, right? There's traditionally not a, as many women in most sports as there are men. And so it, most of the time, at least from what I've observed, is that the women's community in any sport is a lot tighter knit. Because um, there's so many, so much... There's not nearly as many of you. And so you all want to kind of like stick together and be friends and seems to yeah. seems to be the way it works. Yeah. I want to return back to that leader in our conversation, but tell me a little bit more about why you did end up getting serious about mountain biking. Um, so I was a ski racer forever for a long time. And um, in 2011, 
I was racing at U.S. Nationals um, in Aspen, Colorado, which is where I was living at the time. I moved there. I would move there like November to April to ski race. I had had family that lived up there. Um, So I was ski racing and I crashed racing the downhill and I ended up uh, like destroying my left knee completely. I um, tore my ACL and my MCL and my LCL and completely obliterated my meniscus and tore my hamstring and like tiny baby fracture on my femur. Um, So I had a couple of surgeries. My knee is actually turning nine, nine years old in February, which is crazy. Um, But so I had a couple of surgeries and for the first surgery, I my meniscus was so messed up. I wasn't allowed to be weight bearing for like eight weeks. I was in a locked knee brace not allowed to like bend my knee because they wanted my meniscus to heal. And then I had the ACL surgery in April. Um, and they like want you to start moving immediately for an ACL surgery. And so they put me on like a spin bike in the physical therapy office. And that was like what I did. And then I still wasn't allowed to do like a whole bunch of things, but they were like, you can ride a road bike or you can like ride a mountain bike on the street or on the urban trail or something. Like you, you can't go like ride single track, but you can. And so I just like kind of started riding more and it was kind of boring. I didn't like super love it, but I was like, oh, well, this is like good exercise. And I guess we do this for dry land sometimes. But um, at the time I had like a really old, well, not super old, but pretty old, like 1997 specialized rock hopper that had been my dad's um, that I rode. Um, And then I healed and went back to ski racing. Um, Didn't really ride bikes anymore. How long did it take you to heal from all that? I had my first surgery in February, middle of February. I had the second surgery at the end of April. And then... I actually got cleared to return to sports in the very beginning of August. So I had like a three and a half month ACL recovery, um, which was really fast. And I had a lot of really good people around me helping me heal. I had an amazing physical therapist. And then I had this uh, wonderful massage therapist, energy healer woman named uh, Jennifer, who I don't even know if she's still in Flagstaff anymore, but she did, you know, a bunch of like Reiki and sound therapy and massage that I'm a big believer in that stuff and I think it really helped. So yeah. So didn't didn't really ride bikes for like the next year. And then uh I took a year off before going to college to keep ski racing because I really wanted to ski race in college and I had missed the season for my injury. Um so I was trying to lower my points enough to maybe be a college ski racer and um ended up hurting my knee again. Not super bad, but I thought that I had retorn my ACL. And I was like, well, maybe it's time to pick a different sport. Like, <laughs> I don't want to keep hurting myself. I want to be able to ski when I'm, you know, 75 years old. So um, I ended up getting, a, I was really good friends with the bike shop, one of the bike shop owners in town. And I got a really good deal on like a modern mountain bike and started riding bikes and started racing. And that was it. <laughs> So what was it like to give up a sport that it sounds like you devoted a lot of your life to? Uh, it was, I like look back on it now and I'm like, oh, it's fine. But no, I remember being like so absolutely like devastated about the whole thing. I remember I was living in Colorado and when I hurt my knee the second time I was up in Mammoth, California and I thought I had torn my ACL and I was like, oh God, I called my surgeon. He was like, well, you need to come home so that we can do an MRI and look at it and blah, blah, blah. So my mom, my sweet, sweet mother, my parents have been through so many stupid injuries with me. My mom drove from Flagstaff to Mammoth like in a day and came and picked me up, drove me home. I had an MRI. I didn't end up having a tear. Um, we drove back to Colorado because all my stuff was there, um, packed up all my stuff because it was, it, there was, I didn't tear it, but I couldn't keep racing. Um, thankfully it was at like the very end of the season. It was like the beginning of April. Um, but there was no point in me being in Colorado anymore. So drove back to Colorado, got my stuff. And then I remember like 
going on a walk up the urban trail with my mom. And she was like, you know, you really need to start thinking about like what you want to do. And maybe it's not ski racing, you know? And I was like, mom, how could you say something like that to me? That is so neat. I can't believe that you don't, you're not supporting my dreams and blah, 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 blah. And my mom was like, you're being crazy. <laughs> I obviously support you. I'm just saying, you know, maybe you should think about if you don't want to have arthritis when you're 30. And I was like, Neh. um, so I was like super upset. And then, you know, as most conversations with parents, you're like pissed off at them initially. You're like, God, I can't believe they'd say that to me. And then you go home and you like think about it for a little while and you're like, shit, they're right. <laughs> um, so I eventually came to terms with it. And as soon as I like started doing something else, as soon as I had like a different distraction, a different sport, um, I was sad that I wasn't ski racing, but I wasn't like heartbroken that I wasn't doing it. I was like, oh, I could be like, this is also fun and it reminds me of skiing. And yeah, so it ended up working out. My mom was actually the one that suggested maybe you should take up mountain biking, which is probably something she regrets now, but. <laughs> so why did you choose to compete in mountain biking so early on? Um, I went on this bike ride with a good friend of mine who was working at the bike shop at the time and we had gone to high school together and um, enduro mountain biking was just really becoming a thing in the United States in like 2013. Um, I think that the first year of the Enduro World Series, which is like the World Cup um, of Enduro, was 2010. 12, 2011 or 2012. And it wasn't really like a format in the United States before that. There was something called Super D, which was kind of similar to Enduro, but not quite. Um, so there Can was you this. explain what Enduro is for listeners who don't know? Yeah. So Enduro mountain biking is a really, really fancy way of saying trail riding. <laughs> I am kind of like, I think the word Enduro is kind of dumb really, because it's the whole premise of enduro mountain bike racing was like to be modeled after what a normal ride would look like, right? Like you aren't crushing up the climbs, not like trying super hard, um, but you're like moving along at a good clip and then you get to the top and you rally down and it's super fun. Um, so enduro was is supposed to be... Um, untimed, they call them transfers, um, an untimed transfer, which is like your pedal to the top of whatever stage you're going to, um, and then a time descent. And it's multiple stages. It might be like three or four stages a day. The race could only be one day, or it could be two days, or it could be six days. Um, just depends on the race. Uh, so the the transfer, the climb, you have to do it. Sometimes you race in bike parks and you get like a lift assist that's not always a pedal, but most of the time it is. Um, and you don't necessarily like, you aren't timed, but you're given a time limit. So you're giving a start time and then you're giving, you're giving, given a start time for your descent. So if you don't make it before your start time for your stage, then you get a penalty. Um, and so how do you win? Is it based on how fast you go down the hill, essentially? Yeah, yeah. so it's combined time of all of your time descents. Um, okay. And is the enduro the same thing as downhill? Um, a little different. They're becoming, they're becoming very similar, sort of. Um, downhill racing is uh, you always t you, you get a lift assist, um, and then you often get, like, numerous practice runs on a downhill race. Um, like you show up, you know, four days before the race and you get a track walk on day one. And then day two, you get a couple of practice runs and day three, you get a couple of practice runs. And then day four, you get a practice run and your race run. Um, so it's multiple, multiple runs on the exact same track. Um, enduro is going at least like the enduro world series is, uh, you get one practice run on each stage and it's between certain times. So you can't just go ride it whenever you want. Um, they're pretty strict about when people are on the track and then that's it. That's all you get. One practice run. Um, 
There's also a lot of blind enduro races, which are like my most favorite thing to do, where you just show up in the middle of Mexico and go ride your bike downhill really fast and hope that there's nothing like super treacherous. <laughs> um, so yeah. So let's go back to that conversation with your friend mm. from the bike shop that got you into competition. Yes. So I was <laughs> going on this bike ride with my friend Tyler um, and it was horrible. <laughs> it was so terrible. We started climbing Eldon Lookout Road and I was like in ski racing shape, which is really different than bike racing shape. Ski racing shape is like, I could squat like 300 pounds and was like not by no means like an endurance athlete. I was like, uh, you know, you're fast for a minute and a half for your race run and that's it. And so like pedaling up Eldon Lookout Road, which is like a six mile road climb and a couple thousand feet of elevation. I was like, this is so terrible. I was dying. Um, we finally made it up there and started descending and then like did another funny climb and then ended up on this like super weird technical uh, trail that at the time I had never ridden. Now it's one of my favorite trails, but I, Tyler the entire time is like yapping my ear off about how I should really try this enduro mountain bike racing thing. And it's so cool and it's so fun and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I don't want to race bikes. This is so hard. <laughs> um, and we end up on this trail and I, ate shit so hard. I like, he's like, oh yeah, just follow me. And I followed him and like went straight over the bars, put my face into a rock, like scraped up my chin. I had to go to my friend's like graduation. I was super upset that my face was all messed up. Um, and I was like, no, I found my game dumb. This is hard. And, uh, he's like, no, I swear, I swear you should really try it. I was like, you should really shut up. Um, I somehow ended up at this race anyway. I went to a race in Crested Butte, um, a big mountain enduro. It was the first race I did. And I raced amateur, obviously, because I had no clue what I was doing. My mom came with me because I was, I was 19 at the time. And I was like, I don't really know what this is. And, you know, if it sucks, we can just go, like, hike or something. And so my mom came with me. Um, I ended up crashing like every single stage. It was a two-day race. I crashed every single stage of the race. One time I like totally tacoed my wheel so it like wouldn't actually spin through my fork anymore. Um, and I like ran my bike to the bottom. Um, and I ended up getting third. I was like, oh, cool. And like got a bunch of free tires and stuff, which when you're buying anything as an athlete, you're like, God, this sucks. This stuff is so expensive. So like getting a bunch of free tires and stuff, I was like, cool. And I got like a free full face helmet. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep going to this so I can get this free stuff. And like, we'll see how I do. Um, ended up going to a couple more and uh, not crashing as much, but still crashing and doing better. Um, so yeah. Then the next year, I don't know how... Uh, like a boyfriend at the time, I think, convinced me to race pro. And I was like, pro? Really? And like the first race I went to, there were like two women. <laughs> so I got second. Um, but I kept racing pro. And that's kind of like how the whole career kind of just started. I kept just like getting faster and getting better. And it ended up actually turning into something. It ended up turning into a career. Yeah. So it's really clear to me that you love racing downhill in mm -hmm. any in any format. What is it about downhill that you love? Oh man. Well I don't know if it's just because like I started skiing when I was super young. I started skiing when I was two and a half or three years old. Um my parents skied. Um so I feel like maybe it was just kind of instilled in me to like going downhill because I started when I was super young and then ski racing you only go downhill unless you're one of those crazy people that Nordic skis. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I think I've just always really liked it. It's obvious. I mean, some people don't like to go fast. Some pe going fast scares some people, but I think it's just like a very uh, free feeling. Like you kind of feel like superhuman, you know, like going 75 miles an hour on a pair of skis is not something many people do. And to 
go 75 miles an hour on a pair of skis and like be composed and uh like that's as fast as you drive your car on the freeway and it's just fucking cool to do it i think about it now like i was a ski coach for a long time after i quit racing and like watching my watching my athletes race downhill and super g i was like oh god no like i would never do it again um but it was really awesome when i was when i was doing it and it just translated over to biking biking and skiing have a very very similar like body dynamics um so it was just like oh look at this this is so fun i can like jump over these rocks and go really fast and go off this jump and i think that when i first started mountain biking i was like <laughs> uh maybe too comfortable going fast because of skiing and so i was like oh yeah i'll go down that whatever i don't care and crashed a lot um, cause I didn't really know what I was doing on a bike, but I liked to go downhill fast on skis. So I figured I could do it and I crashed a lot <laughs> and I got hurt a lot. And my parents were like, you're going to need to quit bike racing. This is too dangerous. We don't like this. And I was like, you were the people that wanted me to do this. Um, so eventually figured it out. The person on that scooter out there is going really fast too. I think it's an airplane actually. Oh. We just heard. Oh. So when you say crash... Like, I think of a crash as, like, you get a concussion and your face is all bloody. Like, what do you mean by a crash? What is the spectrum of crashes for Alex? Um, I have been lucky to not really hit my head very much in my crashes. Obviously, like, you can get concussions from whiplash, not necessarily hitting your head. But I've been very lucky to not actually have very many real head injuries. I've, I've hit my head one time really hard that like scared me and I took a break but most of my crashes were like uh falling and like landing on my elbows and if I were wearing short sleeves you could see my forearms they're like disgusting super scarred up from all of those early crashes it was just you know things like I can do that and not actually really being able to do what I was doing. Um, so it was mostly like getting bloody shins or bloody elbows and things like that. I ended up one time dislocating my ankle, which was a big bummer. Um, I didn't end up with any breaks, so it ended up being okay. But I was in Gooseberry, Utah, and had to like be carried out of off of the trail by like two of my friends, put in the back of a car, driven down a really long bumpy dirt road, driven to St. George to the hospital, having my ankle like reduced. It was not cool. Um, got over that and then dislocated my elbow uh, riding, like just riding around doing dumb stuff with one of my friends, like not doing anything hard and just like fell and put my arm out to catch myself and ended up dislocating my elbow, um, which was also horrific. Um, hiking out of Kelly's Canyon down there while my friend had to push my bike. Um, she's a lot shorter than me. So her pushing my bike was, <laughs> was a pretty funny sight, but it was a disaster and then getting that fixed and then dislocating it again like three months later because I was like, oh, it feels fine. I'll go ride my bike. And then it wasn't healed and dislocating it again and almost having to have a elbow reconstruction, being off my bike for like three and a half or four months for that one to heal. And then the next year, mind you, these are like all in a row. <laughs> this is like ankle one year, elbow the next year. And then, uh, the next year, I dislocated my collarbone um, racing, which was also terrible. I couldn't do anything for like four months because they won't do surgery for it the, where it was dislocating. Um, so there was that. And then the next year, I broke my hand. Um, so I, pause for a second. <laughs> this is like I'm just hearing this, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So how – like, does anyone stay safe in enduro? Like, yeah. or is this pretty common in enduro, like for everyone to have a really intense injury pattern? Um, no, it's not. I also didn't want to interrupt you. You were, <laughs> no, there no, was no. more after the hand. No, no, the hand is the last one. Um, no, no, it's not as, it's not 
that common for people to be as hurt as <laughs> I was all the time. I was definitely just like risking it for the biscuit and like not really knowing what I was doing. Um, I was, a, I was a good mountain biker, but definitely was just like needed to slow down. Um, which I finally realized after like injury, after injury, after injury, I was like, okay, fine. I'll go slower. And going slower is never appealing because you're like, that's not how you win. You don't win by going slow. But uh, it turns out that going slower and not crashing is faster than going fast and crashing. So figured it out. I think though a lot of actually sports could could resonate with that, even as runners. Totally. Like people who, for example, always run their easy days super hard. Right. Like they're going to get injured because they're never letting their body recover. Right. You're like, why do I have such bad shin splints? Oh, right. Exactly. And so there's actually kind of a lesson in that for any sport. Yeah. Talk to me about fear. Like, I think a lot of people would hear what you do, and especially with your history of injuries, it'd be like, wow, does she have any fear? Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, not often. Uh, I've, I have, um, how am I, what am I trying to say? I, I don't have a lot of fear. There are definitely, I have definitely like taken a step back and become more cautious um, or just like thought about the risk of what I'm doing more and more, um, especially with all this like research into concussions and TBIs and CTE and all of that kind of stuff. And I had a very, very good friend that, I kind of started racing with who ended up suffering from a really bad TBI. What um, does that stand for? A traumatic brain injury. Um, and she has thankfully like made an incredible recovery, but it took a very long time. She, yeah. And so when that happened and like some other terrible stuff happened to some other important athletes, like well-known athletes, I was like, oh God, it'd be a big bummer to like crash and break your neck and crash and break your back and crash and give yourself a TBI. Um, and I was like, I'm really sick of being fucking hurt all the time. Uh, my mom and dad were really sick of me being hurt all the time. So I had some, uh, I had some good mentors in my life that were like, like Alex, I've been a really successful bike racer and I did it by slowing down and taking a step back and knowing when to risk it and knowing when to not. Um, and that finally resonated with me and that's where I'm at. So I look at things now, maybe not with a lot of fear, um, like there are some things that I'm like, hell no, I would never fucking do that. That is scary. Not a chance. Most things I'm just like, do I really need to do that? Like I could, but do I need to? No. So fear sort of in some context and in another way, it's just like self-preservation, I think. How long have you had this mentality or this mindset? I really kind of adopted this self-preservation mindset like a few years ago after I broke my hand and I didn't break my hand doing anything crazy either. It was like, I just put my hand down and had like put it on top of a rock and it broke. Um, but I was like, God, this sucks. Um, so that was in 2016 that I broke my hand. And that was when I was like, okay, I need to have a season. Like I didn't have a single bike racing season since I had started that I had not had a horrific injury. Um, so it was then I was like, I have to figure this out. I need to slow down and take a breath and just like look at things, reevaluate some of my decisions. I like to like, I go to bike races and everybody loves to like crowd around these features and look at them. And I think I, I've never liked doing that. I'm like, eh, I'll just ride it. Like if I get there and I feel comfortable doing it, I'm just going to do it. Um, which has worked out well for me for the most part. And then other times it's like, God, I'm really lucky I didn't die doing that. <laughs> um, or probably not die, but I'm lucky I didn't end up on my head or something like that. So it's been in like the last couple of years that I've taken that, taken that and actually stuck with it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Reading a really beautiful post you wrote on Instagram about just at the turning of the New Year's, how for mm-hmm. you, like movement comes in many different forms mm-hmm. and it's not always structured and you don't have a coach. Yeah. Have you ever had a coach? Mm-hmm. What is it like for you or what kind of training plan do you follow? Um, I was coached from the time I was like three years old uh, throughout my entire ski racing career. And I loved it. I loved having a coach. I was always really lucky to have really great coaches that I loved and were super smart and knew how to like push me in the right way. Um, And then I started bike racing. And it's funny because they're... It's, it's starting more now, like there are NICA programs for high school mountain biking now, which is really cool. That wasn't a thing when I was in high school. Um, so like those kids have coaches, but when I started bike racing, like I didn't have a bike coach. I didn't have anybody telling me how to do anything on a bike. It was like, there's a shop ride, come with us. And it was like me and a bunch of dudes and no one taught me how to do anything. No one coached me into doing anything. They were just like, yeah, follow us. And I was like, okay. Um, so that like coaching structure just really disappeared. And then I like got more serious about bike racing and wanted to be successful. And so I I was like, I probably need a coach or I need like this like structured training plan and blah, 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 blah. And so it was like the winter of between like the winter of 2014, 2014, 15, I got like really into like training and like riding my road bike and doing intervals and like, and it's super easy to do from where I live because I can go down to Sedona anytime and ride my bike in the middle of January or, um, and I stopped skiing, which uh, I didn't realize that I really missed it, but I was like, I was like still coaching, but I wasn't skiing for fun. Um, I just got really into training and then I was in pretty good shape. And then like June rolled around I wanted to like throw my bike off a cliff. I was like, I hate this. I don't want to ride my bike. Like, and then I was like, why do I not want to ride my bike? And I was like, cause I've been riding my bike every day for like the last year. Um, and I had a coach at the time who was wonderful and she was a really good friend of mine and is now actually our team manager. She's a super successful bike racer. Um, her name is Kelly Emmett and I love her and owe her so much, <laughs> but she was my coach and you know, she, I was like, Kelly, I just, I don't think I can do this. She was like, yeah, that's fine. I don't think you need to. Um, so that's kind of when like regimented structure stopped and I just ride when I feel like riding, which is a lot. I feel like riding my bike a lot. Um, and I like to, you know, sometimes I go out on rides with people and we're just like dilly dallying and it's whatever. And it's fine to have like a slow mellow ride every once in a while. Oftentimes I like to like, I go out with people who are fast. And so the pace of the ride ends up just being fast and it's sort of like training, but it's, more fun because it's not. <laughs> so that's kind of what I do. But I also just like, I have a really strong belief in being balanced. Um, my parents have always been the ones that are like, no, you need balance. You can't just do one thing. You need balance. And so like, even growing up, it was like, I was a ski racer and a competitive swimmer and a competitive rock climber and a competitive volleyball player. And like, I did everything that I could possibly do. And then to like stop that and just be a bike racer was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it wasn't really good for me. Um, so went back to skiing a bunch and just skiing for fun and ski touring. And, you know, I don't, I'm like now in this space of like, if the snow's really good, I'm probably going to go skiing and I'm not going to waste the time to drive to Sedona and ride my bike uh, if the snow's not that great, then I'm probably going to drive to Sedona and ride my bike. So I just think it's balance. I go to the gym. I love going to the gym. It's like, I don't know if it's just like ingrained in me from ski racing, but that's like one constant. I go to the gym. Yeah. What do you do at the gym? Uh, well, whatever happens to be. I actually, I guess I do have a coach. Um, 
I've always like gone to this small little gym downtown Flagstaff that's like three feet from my front door. Um, so I've always had like a personal trainer that writes me programs, um, which is, yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. It's actually like the one thing that I'm like, I can't go to a gym and like not have a program. I can't go to a gym and just like make up my own workout because I either end up like not really working that hard or like absolutely obliterating myself. Um, so I go to the gym like two or three days a week usually. That's awesome. Yeah. I definitely feel like you are embodying what your parents <laughs> preach, which is balance, like that I you have so. a lot of different modalities in your life. Yeah. And you understand like where you want to have plans and mm-hmm. where it doesn't serve you to have plans. Right. Like that takes a lot of actually experience to get there. Right. Well, and like sometimes I feel like maybe it's just sometimes it can be too much and I'm like, I shouldn't be so just like lax about everything all the time, you know, because like I'm going to a bike race in Chile uh, in the middle of February and I haven't ridden my bike in five weeks. And I'm like, maybe I should go ride my bike because I don't want to go down to Chile and just like get obliterated because I haven't ridden my bike in so long. Um, So there's like definitely this component of like, sometimes I get a little bit too lax about the, about everything. I'm like, oh, well, like hiking the Grand Canyon will be good training. Going on a run's good training. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with riding my bike. (laughs) And I should probably actually go ride my bike. Yeah. So, yeah. So yesterday I was actually in Sedona for the first time and I was running with our mutual friend Alicia and we were at this one spot and we looked over and she said, that's the Sedona White Line Trail, which is this mountain biking trail that you can see from a distance. Everyone should YouTube Sedona White Line Trail. And she said, ask Alex if she's ever done the White Line. Fuck no. (laughs) Not a chance. (laughs) Um, I I have like walked up there before. Um, that's kind of one of those things. It's like risk versus reward, right? Like, um, if you actually walk up there, the white line is quite wide. Like it's probably 18, 20, 24 inches wide, maybe like it's the size of a single track, but, um, it's, <laughs> everyone should Google it. There's an incredible video of a whole bunch of people doing it. There's a really good video of a guy named Yohan Borelli, who's a, bike racer, um, doing it. I just think it's fucking stupid. (laughs) Um, if you fell, it's super high consequence. Are you going to fall? Probably not. Um, but very high, high consequence. If something, if you sneezed like, and fell to the right, like you're falling off a cliff. Um, so no, I have never ridden the white line. I will probably never ride the white line. I don't really think that, most people should ever try to ride the white line. Okay. Respect. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. There are some people I'm like, cool, good for you. That's great. You're talented. I know you have incredible bike control, but like, ugh. Yeah. The, I think the risk, I mean, you could die essentially mm-hmm. um, if you fell yeah, from it. Yeah. It would be a bummer. It yeah. would be a really big bummer. <laughs> Do you know if there's any women or any female riders you know who've done it? Um, I have a friend down in Sedona named Gina. Um who is married to another friend, Alex. And Alex was a professional racer for a long time. And Gina is also raced professionally a little bit. And I think that Gina wrote it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Gina wrote it. And yeah, good for her. I couldn't do it. I just like, it like makes me clammy even like thinking about it. I'm like, ugh. And then my friend Bella, (laughs) um, maybe tried to write it like last week. And then I think she decided that it was stupid and she walked out. So I'm sure there are more women than that that have done it. Um, those are the only two I know. Yeah. So let's return back to why are there not more women in the sport of biking? Um, that's a great question. There are a lot. It's funny. Um, I think that there are a lot of women in bike race or maybe not in bike racing, but there are a lot of women that ride bikes. Um, I ride for uh, Juliana Bicycles, which is a women's brand. It's the women's brand of Santa Cruz Bicycles. And we put on these events around the country, um, and we get tons of women that show up to them everywhere we go, like Minnesota, New Jersey, uh, Arizona, Canada, wherever we go, 
there's tons of women. So there are plenty of women that ride bikes. Um, I think that there are less women in the competitive side of mountain biking, um, at least the gravity-oriented side of mountain biking, because women are maybe have like a slightly more developed prefrontal cortex than men and understand the whole risk versus reward thing. And they're like, why would I huck myself down that mountain? That could be bad. Like, hmm, no. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of women cross country racers, and which is funny because cross country is really super gnarly <laughs> nowadays. Like they do the gnarliest stuff without very much suspension and like no dropper posts, which I would never do. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot more women on that side on in the cross country side, and but less so in the gravity side. And I think it's like it's always kind of been a men a male dominated sport, you know, like how often do you see Red Bull TV like showing a woman racing downhill? It's always men or them showing like this event that only men ever get into, like Red Bull Rampage um, or Hardline or like any of these things. And so I just don't think that it is marketed to women very effectively. Like it's super fun. And I think that more women would really enjoy it, but I just don't think that it's marketed appropriately. I don't think that it seems super inviting to go race these like gravity oriented things, um, which is super unfortunate. Um, and I get that it's, it's hard to do. Um, but I don't know. There's, there's been a lot of improvement in the bike world recently there are some there are some men and women that are doing some really cool things to like get more women into the sport which is really cool and really great but I think it's going to take I don't think that women will ever actually like there will never I don't think it's ever going to be 50 50 um which is fine I but I there should be more women doing it you know when you are riding with groups of people um do you feel welcome yeah I have never shown up somewhere and not felt welcomed. And I don't know if it's because of like just the way I am, you know, I, I'm a pretty like friendly outgoing person. Um, so for me to like, someone has to be like really a, a real, not a nice person for me to like show up and be like, Oh, I don't want to hang out with you. Or like, you clearly don't want to hang out with me. Um, there are definitely, I have definitely like shown up to certain events, uh, and really not been impressed by the male race promoter, um, or the way that women have been treated. You know, it took a long time for women to even get paid like equal prize money in bike racing. Um, that is like universal now. There are not... I, I can't think of any that don't pay women equally, but for a long time, women weren't making the same prize money as men. And, you know, the argument of like, well, there's less women paying into it. Like, it doesn't matter. That's, that doesn't matter. You should pay them equally. Um, so no, I've, I've mostly never had that like bad experience. I've had a couple of like poor experiences and I make it, a point to not really support those people. Like once I find out who those people are, I'm like, okay, well, you don't need me to ever come back to your race ever because I don't like you that much and you don't like me. So, but for the most part, no, most men in the mountain biking community are incredibly welcoming and um, they don't care if you're a girl, like as long as you want to go on this ride with them and like, they don't even really care. I think that's another like, woman thing is like we're so inclined so like predisposed to just say oh sorry I'm slow sorry I'm slow sorry you don't have to wait for me blah 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 blah. which I'm guilty of I do it um I try to do it less often but you know I find myself doing it anyway I ride with really fast guys a lot like it's just a group of friends that they're faster than me. They're really strong. They're professional male mountain bikers. Like they're, 
they're faster than me. And I try not to be like, oh, sorry, because oftentimes when I do, they're like, Alex, shut up, stop saying sorry. But I think that that's the other part of like women not really being in this sport that much is because they don't want to feel unwelcome. They don't want to feel like a burden, but they're not like, we're not a burden. So I just, I wish more people, I wish more women realize that, that most men in this, in the mountain biking community are stoked to have women come along. And if they're not, then you don't want to ride with them anyway, because they're assholes. <laughs> totally. Yeah. A lot of wisdom there. On when you're not biking or skiing, you also work in the ER, mm -hmm. in EMS. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that you have this huge history of like injuries and accidents. And then that's like pretty much the population you're working with. Yeah. Tell me about your journey into working in the ER and what um, that's like. I decide, I have like kind of, ever since I was a little kid, I was like, I want to be a doctor. And like, I don't know if that's just like, you know, a little kid that's like, I want to be an astronaut and I want to be a doctor and I'm, you know, whatever. Um, I have wanted to be a doctor for a really long time. Um, and then I destroyed my knee and I was like, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. That's what I'm going to do. Um, so I went to college here at NAU and got a degree in biomedical science and chemistry so that I could go to medical school. Um, and then... Like my senior year of college, I was like, oh God, I can't imagine going to school for like eight more years. That's so much time. Maybe I should like take my EMT and go work in a hospital and see if I even like working in a hospital before I decided to go to medical school. Um, so I took my EMT class the last semester of my senior year of college and started working in the emergency room that fall. I like didn't go to work right away because I went to race my bike. Um, so yeah, started working in the ER in October of 2016. And I had a bunch of friends that also worked in the emergency room, um, either as nurses or paramedics or EMTs. Um, so it's a, it's a special place. It takes a special kind of person to be in there because it can be uh, pretty gnarly. It can be pretty horrific sometimes. Um, and, but it's also like at the same time, like you, you are working with people who like are either having the worst day of their life or think they're having the worst day of their life. Um, but when, when they get better, it's really cool to see that doesn't always happen. You know, some people don't make it. Um, but so I've, I've really, I love the emergency room. I was like, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to be a doctor. I want to be an ER physician. Um, so I took my MCAT and did decently, but being like super competitive, I was like, I didn't do good enough. I have to take it again. <laughs> um, so took it again and only did like one point better. Uh, so, and everyone was like, just apply, just apply. I was like, I don't really want to. I don't think. I, I was like, I think if I really wanted to be a doctor, I probably would have been like, I would have applied, and um, but I, I knew, I know that I want to be in medicine. I know that I want to be in the emergency room. Um, so I'm actually, I just applied to nursing school, um, and I can do uh, an accelerated nursing program, which there are a handful throughout the country. So there's one here at NAU um, that I applied to, and I applied to a few others, but basically be like an accelerated one-year BSN, which would be super cool. And I would love to stay in the emergency room. And I'd love to keep working in there. It's just, it offers you a very, a very interesting and dynamic perspective on life um, working in there. You know, you, you see people at their worst and you see people getting better and you see people dying and, um, it's just a, it's a nice reminder to not take anything for granted and to not take your physical health for granted and to not take your mental health for granted. Um, so I, yeah, that's my favorite part of working in there is maybe not, I love the work, but it's more just like, it's just a, a daily reminder that 
things could be worse. <laughs> things could be worse. And like, it's whatever you're going through, if, if it's hard, if it's, it could probably be worse. Um, so to like say thanks to your mind and your body for doing what it does and say, you know, tell your friends and your family that you love them and be nice to people. And I don't know, that's what I love the most about the ER is that it's taught me that. You have long shifts, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. When you come home for a sh- from a shift, like, what is your energy like? Uh, unless it's, like, a just a horrific day. Most days, like, I come home and I just want to, uh, like, spin or go on a run or go to yoga or something. Like, move because you, like, run around the emergency room all day long. But, um, like, sometimes... I come home and I'm just like, oh, I just need to like get all of that out. <laughs> I just need to get all of that out. And so usually I come home and I have the energy to like ride the trainer for an hour or go for a run or go to yoga. Um, sometimes I go home and I sit on my couch and I drink wine and I go to bed. <laughs> it just depends. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, how do your coworkers, do they know about your other profession? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I... I'm very lucky to have had a boss in the emergency room the last three and a half years that I've worked there who um, really supports me in my other profession, um, lets me leave work for like weeks at a time um, and come back and have a job, <laughs> which is really cool. I actually like moved back to Colorado last winter for six months to be a ski coach and uh, and kept my job in the emergency room and came back and had a job in the emergency room, kept working, and then immediately left again for like five months to go race my bike. So, yeah, everyone in there is uh, pretty supportive of of that. And everyone in there, like most people that work in the emergency room, are uh, super fit, outdoorsy people. So a lot of them I go skiing with and I go ride bikes with and, yeah. That's super fun. That's really yeah. amazing that you have such a support system in that way. Yeah, it's pretty rad. For this year, for 2020, do you have races or goals or like how do you create a calendar for yourself? (laughs) When I first started racing, I like went to every race I could possibly think of, uh, which turns out that didn't really work that well for me because I got really tired. Um, I still struggle making my calendar and like making it make sense. Um, I say like every year that I'm going to race less than... (laughs) than I did the year before, but it never really seems to happen. Or like maybe it does, but I still travel the same amount. Um, So this year, I'm actually going to a race in the middle of February called Andy's Pacifico, which is a six-day blind enduro race uh, in the Andes, which will be pretty amazing. I've never been down there. Um, And then I won't really race again until like end of April, sort of. Um, The Enduro World Series starts usually in March. There's a couple of rounds, like end of March, beginning of April, and then there's kind of a hiatus, and then like the EWS really starts rolling like June, June to September, October. Um, And I don't really do very many EWS races. I do the North American rounds, which this year will be uh, Burke, East Burke, Vermont, um, and Whistler, Canada. Um, But other than that, I'm really into like the adventure races. So Andy's Pacifico, there's another race down in Mexico, just outside of Mexico City at the end of April that I'd really like to go to. Um, And then a race called Trans BC, which is up in the interior of British Columbia. It's like my one of my favorite races. This will be like the fifth year I've done it. Um, the two EWSs, uh, Trans Cascadia, which is another like blind adventure race um, up in the Cascades, Washington, Oregon area. Um, and then another race in Mexico called Trans Sierra Norte, which is the one down in Oaxaca. So I'm trying to like do less races and only do like the long ones because they're super tiring. Um, but I end up 
somehow someone's like, oh, I'm going to this Raisin Squamish. And I'm like, oh, I want to come. <laughs> so I end up there, uh, even though it wasn't planned. Um, and then, you know, we have to, we have like certain events and obligations with Juliana that we have to be at that aren't necessarily races. Uh, so I end up traveling for those as well. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm always like, <laughs> end of the season rolls around. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so tired. Why did I do this? Why did I do this? I don't want to go. And then I'm like, you did this to yourself. You thought this was a good idea. You're going. <laughs> and then it's always fun. But by the end of it all, I'm like cross-eyed and tired. Wow. Yeah, you get to see so many beautiful places. Mm-hmm. In the mountain biking world, who is someone you look up to? Who inspires you? Mm. Um, There are a lot of very talented, very inspiring writers out there who I think are incredible. Um, the people that I am like the most inspired by though are not necessarily the people that are the most like talented on the bike or have had the most success. Um, I have been incredibly lucky. My racing career would have been a lot different if I had not met a couple of very important people. Um, who are mentors and really, really good friends of mine. Um, Kelly Emmett is our team manager at Juliana Bicycles. Actually, she's now our brand manager, which is amazing. Um, I met Kelly <clears throat> in 2014 in Sedona, just like by chance. I, I knew who she was from racing. She's incredible. She's like multi-time national champion, World Cup cross-country racer who just had like a really like long and pretty successful career and is a just a wonderful human. And I met Kelly as they were starting to form the Juliana SRAM pro team. Um, and so Kelly and a couple others, Anka Martin and Sarah Leishman were like the first three members of the team that I am now currently on. Um, and when they retired, I kind of just like got brought under Kelly's wing um, and got put on that team. And uh, yeah, my my bike racing career would have been a lot different without without Kelly. She's like one of my favorite people. She's one of my best friends. We're going on a ski trip to Silverton in a couple weeks. And it's cool to like have that person who is your mentor and your friend and the person that you look up to. And then um, a couple of other really wonderful people that I've just had the pleasure of knowing and being friends with um, that just, yeah, really shaped, really shaped who I was as a writer. And rode with me a lot. Um, <clears throat> all of my teammates on the Juliana Sram team and um, Adam Craig, who's a very good friend of mine and was an incredibly successful bike racer and uh, taught me a lot <laughs> about how to be a good bike racer and when to slow down and when to not. And um, yeah. Sounds like you've had some incredible influences. Yeah. There's there's like I'm there's so many that I I can't really list them all, but yeah, Kelly and Sarah and Adam and um have all been really huge parts of my life. Yeah, of my career. Beautiful. Sounds like everyone needs a Kelly. <laughs> everyone needs a Kelly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If everyone could have a Kelly, everyone would be a lot happier, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex, for making time in your yeah. schedule to talk with me. And um, I'm really excited to see how this year unfolds for you and follow your adventures and all the Thanks. beautiful places you ride and ski. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, like, a lot more skiing before bike racing really kicks in. But, yeah, I'm excited, too. It'll be fun. Isn't Alex amazing? I so appreciated her honesty in this conversation about her journey in mountain biking and in life. I'd highly recommend you check out Alex on Instagram at Alex J. Pavon. I love following her journey on the bike, on the skis, and her sense of humor that she brings to all of it. If Alex's conversation would resonate or inspire someone you know, please share this podcast with them. Nothing beats word of mouth.
in two very simple ways, you can help support this podcast that in total would take you less than two minutes, or one, to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. iTunes reviews are a huge help in spreading the word about the podcast and help new listeners find it. If I reach 1,000 reviews by halfway through 2020, that's June 2020, I have a very exciting surprise in store for the Running a Gnome community, and we've got a ways to go to get there. I also want to thank everyone who's already left reviews thus far. Please know I read each and every one of them, and I'm so grateful for you. The second way is just to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Next week's podcast will be my monthly Soul Sister Sessions episode with Abby Cooper, and I really look forward to sharing that with all of you. This podcast would not be possible without the incredible team I have around me that helps make it a reality. That's Nick Earl for podcast management, Tim Briggs for design, John Summerford for audio production, Caitlin Murray Minor Ong for illustration and my new album artwork. Thank you to this team. Thank you for listening. Lots of love and gratitude.